Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. In this episode, I meet with Mike Spencer. Mike is a data scientist, and his portfolio contains projects on a wide range of subjects, including agriculture and snowfall in Britain. Mike provides services to, amongst others, Scotland's Rural College. The output is used as input for policy and decision makers. Hello, Mike, and welcome to the show. Hi. Mike, let's start with how do you become a research software engineer? I think for me, it's not so much how I became uh, a research software engineer, but when did I realize I was a research software engineer? Mm-hmm. My undergrad, I did at Lancaster University uh, studying environmental science, um, and we used MATLAB a bit for that. But after I'd graduated, because it's a proprietary product and none of the organizations I subsequently worked for would pay for a license. So so those skills became redundant. I then I worked, I suppose, for, uh, for an environment agency and for an engineering consultancy for a while uh, before I began my PhD. And one of the things I really found was that actually not being able to code was was really holding back the work I was doing. Uh, so simple problems like uh, being given an irregular time series, but needing to convert it to a regular time series and infill with uh, with missing values with NA or, or whatever would be sort of laborious days with Excel. And actually, that's a it's a really simple thing to do uh, with with code, but it wasn't something I could do at the time. So when I gave up consultancy and I uh, moved to do a PhD at Edinburgh, one of my goals as well as the PhD project was to to learn to code uh, to help me uh, solve these sorts of problems. So I suppose the way I tackled the problems and challenges in my PhD was very much driven by this, was a case as well, I, I could do this by some lengthy spreadsheet type method and it might take me a week, or mm. I could try and code it and it will probably also take me a week but at the end of that week I would have learned something new and I will be able to do it again very rapidly whereas uh, if I'd done it via a spreadsheet and inevitably made a mistake I would then have the whole workload to do again. I suppose through my PhD I got great support from people like John Stevenson and Maggie Hagdorn at Edinburgh and and seeing what they were capable of doing and thinking no I, I want a part of that but I think really what switched it was uh, was following the Software Sustainability Institute and seeing just how much of their output was useful to me. If I can relate to so much of this, actually, that's probably where I belong. So when the Research Software Engineers Society came along, you thought, well, actually, that's probably, it's a natural progression and something I wanted to be a part of. That's quite an interesting story. I think one that I heard a few times already, that uh, scientist, researcher morphing into software engineer. But before we go more into software engineering, I'd like to home in on one of your research projects, which was to analyze snowfall in Great Britain. Could you tell us more about this project and what you found out? Yeah, so this is uh, it's essentially my PhD. Um, this is the elevator pitch, isn't it, that all students should be able to do. Shortly after my PhD, I, I gave a, a presentation at a tech conference on snow um, in Scotland. And, and again, it was in London during a heat wave. Felt quite a disconnect, but then there's sort of this idea or not. The, the second largest flood event on record uh, on the River Thames was generated by snowmelt in 1947. While we might not want to think about it at the time, we can't ignore sort of the bigger pictures, whether whether in a heat wave or, or whatever else. We we always need to 
to keep our eye on, on what could happen um, and the impacts that there might be. Uh, so I was working with uh, historic data uh, collected by observers across Scotland um, from 1945 until 2007. And I suppose like many PhD projects, it began with a fairly laborious task. I, I then, uh, I suppose, wrote some code to do some some computer modeling to infill where I didn't have data either in time or within space uh, and did various mapping projects with that and uh, looked at how snowmelt related to uh, to reservoir flooding uh, and, and as you say, linking to other data sets, looking at longer term snow records, um, looking at climate fluctuations. And some of that's still going on. Uh, so I've been doing some work with the James Hutton Institute for the Cairngorms National Park. Uh, so modeling their future snow possibility and for the National Park to think, well, what do they need to put in place for for stable economics in the longer term? So this is sort of running models up to 2080, which, as I'm sure you can guess, is we can't predict the weather next week. So um, <laughs> so it's all it's generally quite indicative, but it's this idea of well, what long term preparations might need to happen to either support the ski industry or do something else instead, uh, ensure tourism survival um, in, in one of the coldest parts of the UK. You've got quite a diverse portfolio of research anyway, so I think the snow cover and climate fluctuation is one of them. Uh, another one seems to be agriculture, and I'd be interested to find out what projects you worked on in there. And could you give us an example and what role software, and in particular data science, has played in this? Uh, so I work for Scotland's Rural College, and we are one of the main research providers to the Scottish Government on food and agriculture. Uh, so the Scottish Government paid for, paid for nearly all of my time. And as part of that, I'm involved in lots of projects looking at primarily agriculture, but there's also other work on digital connectivity or microbrewing and distilling in Scotland, uh, lots of things on rural businesses. But my work is, it's a, a blend of, I suppose, a whole team of skills. So I support a team of economists and sociologists at Scotland's Rural College, and I help them scale their workflows. I don't have a background in agriculture, and they don't have a background in data. Um, but between us, we we collaborate and find a way forward uh, that helps us answer bigger questions than either of us could tackle on our own. Uh, so one example of that is is using animal movements data to look at farm efficiency. Uh, so for disease control, uh, when um, particularly cows, when they move from, say, a farm to a market or a farm to another farm or a farm to an abattoir, that movement has to be logged. If there is a disease outbreak, you can look and say, what other cows has this animal come into contact with and where might the disease problems be? In a classic data science kind of way, uh, I have a data set that wasn't designed to do the problem that I am tasked with. So this is thinking about, well, how efficiently does farm X perform or how efficiently do farms of this type perform across the, the whole sector? So we're talking about a database that's got something like 400 million interactions in, uh, but because my work is going directly to policymakers, they don't want traditional academic outputs. What they want is a, a nice, easy diagram that they can pick up in two minutes and take to ministers in order to to bring about legislation or whatever else is needed in order to, to help get food onto people's plates and do it as efficiently as possible and uh, so from a climate perspective and energy perspective, but also in a way that supports the rural economy. So as you can imagine, there's uh, lots of things in there, like uh, huge amounts of SQL, uh, trying to extract uh, information from a database. We do 
uh, network analysis type problems, thinking about who's trading with who, uh, where are the clusters uh, around activity. There's, I suppose, lots of uh, summary statistic type things and and reimagining what uh, a movement might mean in terms of, say, if a breeding cow leaves a farm, does that mean that the breeding cow is being replaced? Uh, and so we're, we're starting to think about sort of these bigger, bigger challenges like that, which hitherto it's been it's easy to understand on a single farm basis, like how many calves mm. are born for a given number of cattle, but has been very difficult to do on a national level. When you talk about efficiency, so you mentioned that a couple of times in that respect, what exactly do you mean? If an animal dies on a farm, it can't legally enter the food chain. It needs to be slaughtered in an abattoir. And death on farm in Scotland for cattle is something like 8%. As a broad idea, that's, that's sort of nearly 10% of, of cattle that could have entered the food chain. If we're thinking about the bigger climate picture, that beef isn't all that sustainable, there are huge amounts of things we can do to try and improve its sustainability without the end consumer necessarily having to change anything. So, and that's not to say that the end consumer shouldn't change their behavior, but that actually, if we look at all parts of the supply chain from farm to fork, that, that there are lots of things we can do along the way to, to all contribute to, to meeting climate targets. You mentioned delicate and delicacy in data science. What role do you think that ethics should play in data science, machine learning and AI? It's very easy to lose sight as an analyst of the individuals involved in your data set. When I'm looking at sort of 400 million cattle movements, I'm clearly not looking at those on an individual animal basis, let alone an ind individual farm basis. But that doesn't mean that individuals aren't involved and they aren't affected. I suppose as, as well as that, it's very easy to focus on the technical challenge. Can I write some code which will solve this problem in a given way and provide this output? What we have a tendency to do is to miss the impact of our work, to, to maybe jump ahead in, in, in what I'm thinking about. I, uh, I've been involved in doing a, a, a data ethics class, and one of the exercises in that is we get all of the students to stand up and we take a fairly innocuous example of, um, of scraping some Twitter data and then doing, uh, doing some analysis with it. And we get the students to sit down at the point that they're uncomfortable. And, and it begins as a, as a genuine project we've, we've had uh, at the Rural College so that we are looking at how small farmers interact directly with their customers through Twitter. We're saying, well, you know, would you be happy as a researcher to try and improve the way that farmers communicate to their customers so they might be able to sell more produce? A surprising number of students sit down at that point, which means they really can't do a job in advertising because that's essentially what advertising is isn't it is how do you better sell a product and understand your consumers and then as, as we go down this list we've got things like you know would, if you can get uh, two groups of people to interact better with each other can you get two groups of people to to dislike each other to separate them and spread them apart and that's personally where i would draw a line and i would imagine every ethics committee at every university would draw a line is that that, that would be unethical um, without agreement of anyone participating in the study. But then we carry on and, and before we know it, we're in a full-blown uh, Cambridge Analytica type scenario where you're saying, well, can we separate these groups of people and get them to vote for different people and all of, all of that sort of idea. And, and so it's, it's easy to see, I think, how you can take a fairly innocuous example and spiral it out of control into something that um, is very definitely something we shouldn't do. But in the middle of that, there is inevitably a gray area. 
And it can be very hard to see that as the individual involved in the project and even the individual leading the project. And I suppose this is where university ethics committees come in, um, particularly for the social sciences, that they they are there as, a, as an independent view on on what the research plan is. I suppose the goal of laying all of that out at the beginning is that rather than being swept up in the middle of it and it becomes incrementally worse is you already have a plan for where you can stop and say, no, actually, that's that's the point um, which I do not go past. You mentioned that data science and the impact it has, particularly on uh, policy and policy decisions, and we tend to forget that uh, ever now and then. And it's also quite good that you remind us that as software engineers, we also have a role to play on this. But is there anything concrete yet you can say throughout the workshops that you just mentioned, how we can facilitate a fairer and a more ethical data science? I've seen talk about things like uh, ideas of Hippocratic oaths and things like that, but actually there are so many different flavors of data science. Um, that how do you regulate that? How do you enforce people signing up to it? And, and I'm not really sure that's the way. Uh, so the course I was talking about, I developed with Neville Hopley, George Watson's college, and so we originally taught it as a class to his to his statistics higher students. So they're 16, 17 year olds, and it went really well. It was really well received. Um, it was obviously a very different idea for Neville to get someone in from the outside and actually talk to students about about ethics rather than just thinking about t-tests or and so whatever else you might teach 16 year olds about statistics. Um, but because it's a workshop based uh, material, it's also we've used it for MSc classes with uh, within the Royal College. Uh, back to this idea of regulation, it's impossible to control people. Um, so there's only so much we can do. But what we need to do is give them the best knowledge we can and give them the best tools that we can in order to to help them make the correct decisions. I'm not really sure it should be our job to be gatekeepers, uh, whether that's on ethics uh, or on other aspects. I work quite closely with the IT uh, department uh, within the Royal College, and, and a lot of their work is, is about gatekeeping. It's about keeping systems secure, uh, whereas I see part of my work as bubble pushing and saying, well, okay, we've, we've got this, we've got this line here, but actually, do we need it? Would it be okay if we stretched it in this way uh, so that we can do this work differently in a more efficient manner um, so that our staff have better access to systems? That sort of yin and yang that, that finds a balance in the way that we're, we're solving problems. So we're still doing it safely. This role of gatekeeper shouldn't be that or us not being gatekeepers shouldn't be that new uh, to research software engineers. It's just thinking of it a different way rather than technical security is thinking about it as a as an ethics and the people involved in our study. Uh, and I think one one thing I like to do is when I'm doing analysis, I what if I was one of the the people involved in this study? What if I was one of the data points? Um, how would I feel if I did this? How would I feel if this happened? Would I be okay if someone was doing that with information about me. And I find while I may have a different opinion to others, it, it's always helpful to put on some shoes and, and, and walk around in someone else's for a while uh, and think about how that might make you feel. One of the elements in ethics is also the aspect of diversity, the diversity of data, and we can come to the diversity in the workplace maybe as a separate subject later on. So how important do you think that diversity is in the data science domain, for instance, in the work you've done? I suppose the contribution to the debate is, is to listen to other people's voices. But because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And as part of that, we need to recognize our own limitations. Um, if you sort of think back to what I was saying about supporting a group of sociologists and economists to bring lots of different people with different skills together to solve a problem. 
then that also applies within diversity and ethics and everything else that I don't have all the answers. Worse than that, none of us, I think, are aware of all of our biases. So it's even more important to have a range of viewpoints and a range of people from different backgrounds offering contributions to a team to help things move forward in the the most effective way. And maybe it doesn't feel effective at the time, but in the long run, hopefully it helps avoid mistakes. It's sort of a, a classic example I heard about where where a soap dispenser would dispense soap onto a white hand, but onto black skin, it didn't recognize anything was there. It's obviously bad, but it's a mistake. It's a faulty product. If you had bought that product as an organization, put soap dispensers in all your toilets, you'd rightly turn around and say, these soap dispensers only work a proportion of the time because you haven't tested them properly. So as a company, it makes economic sense to to have diversity represented because it helps you avoid um, problems and mistakes like that. I don't think we should just appeal to people's inner capitalist, but it also helps to have the arguments ready uh, if that's the way people are thinking. Uh, I have another example that I'd like to throw in, and uh, I encountered that actually at a conference earlier this year, AI in medicine. And um, somebody from Benevolent AI presented a case where the effectiveness or the lack of diversity in data science leads to a severe impact. In some data science projects, it might be a little bit harder to look for this kind of dramatic impact, but do you see there is a case to be made that lack of diversity could lead to these kind of erroneous interpretations? Farming's a funny one in that farmers in Scotland are by and large old, white and male uh, and that's not to say there aren't exceptions, but that is is very much the demographic. I think something like the the average farmer age in Scotland's in the late sixties. With the best will in the world, those farmers are going to retire or die soon. And so, how do you cultivate the next generation um, to take over from where they've left off? Another way of looking at it is if you imagine a, a, a pandemic where older males were more susceptible to to the disease, thinking of nothing in particular, then maybe you wouldn't want all of your food grown by by that demographic. So there are lots of issues that uh, I think play into, into huge parts of it. I've come from, a I think, a relatively privileged position on diversity. And the, the, the department I work in, so it's called Rural Economy, Environment and Society, and there's about 50 staff there, and we are roughly a 50-50 gender split uh, and employ people from, from all over the world. I suspect it is as much a product that most of the staff there are economists and sociologists uh, and that they are maybe more likely to be diverse than, than say, physics or, or some of uh, some other subjects. But that, that means that I... You know, I, I walk around my department. I'm, I already have a, a big mix of ideas to challenge me. I'm not saying it, it isn't a problem, but, um, from my work currently, I work in a diverse research institute looking at a not very diverse population. I don't think I'd realize quite how much it was until a couple of years ago. I went along to a, an AWS event in Edinburgh and and I think there was something like four or five hundred people there and maybe ten or fifteen women, at least half of whom were employed by Amazon. And and that was a real eye opener. I think like until that point I I hadn't really recognized what a lack of diversity in tech actually looked like. From a background of of R and, and working in environmental sciences 
from a gender point of view, the geosciences department I was in was relatively well represented. R, I think, is uh, has some enormously prominent female leaders uh, like Jenny Bryan, uh, Emily Robinson, uh, Anna Cristali. We have a, an initiative in Edinburgh called Our Coding Club, which is led by two women, Gagana Daskalova and Isla Maya Smith. And so I, I'm sort of looking out at all of these fantastic female leaders, and that was just normal for me. And, and being dropped into a different part of the tech industry was quite a shock. Uh, and, and I think that's maybe coming from, from a not software development background. Yes, I think we are probably in a privileged position. But as Camilla Longden, um, a woman that I interviewed a while ago, said, diversity starts at the team level. Is there something that you think that research software engineers can offer to the tech sector? As much as I think these conversations are really important, I think like they're also, I find them very difficult and I'm acutely aware of my own imposter syndrome that I, you know, here we are as two white males talking um, about this. And I, I think it's, I think it's very important for everyone to talk about it, but I, would I want to lecture someone else on it or, or try and teach them? I, I think I'd feel very uncomfortable on, about that. I helped organize a conference uh, last year, uh, which is Phosphor G UK. It's free and, ocean, free and open source uh, geospatial software. So things like QGIS and GRASS and Python's involved and R and, and all of those great tools. Um, and we we were asking around for, for keynote speakers and saying, would you like to be in, involved? And one of the speakers we asked, who who is a white male, um, his first question was, you haven't just asked white males, have you? I, I don't want to be involved if that's what you've got. And it wasn't. Like it, it was it was a 50-50 gender split. In some ways, it's, you know, it's an active choice of the, the event organizers, isn't it? To be diverse, you have to actively do something because it's too easy to pick people from your own bubble, which happen to be the same sorts of people that you are. Uh, and I suppose that's the, the same thing, whether you're recruiting. Um, I think it doesn't matter what kind of work you're doing. I mean, that's sort of for me in data work, they're, they're numbers in time and space, and it doesn't really matter what you're analyzing. Pushing outside that bubble to speak to other people who analyze numbers in time and space, you will learn different things because different organizations, different sectors, um, different and inevitably then different people will look at the same numbers in time and space in a different way and um, and help improve the way that you tackle problems. But in order to do that, we all have to have conversations. We have to move ourselves outside of our comfort zone and, uh, and whether that's going to user groups and speaking to people that we wouldn't ordinarily speak to uh, because we don't know them already uh, or whether that's going to different types of conferences I feel I have a, a, a listening task, not a lecturing or preaching task in this. And hence why I'm maybe sounding less comfortable than I, I have on, on some of our, our rest of our discussion. These are really very concrete skills that I believe we can actually inspire in uh, research software engineering. But I think we've reached the end of the podcast now. So I'd like to finish with two questions. Uh, the first one is, if you imagine a point far ahead into the future and you were to look back to your career, what do you think a successful career should look like? That I'd be redundant. And so that might not be, might not be quite what you'd expect. Uh, so I, I think what I find really interesting is those first steps. If we think back to the journey I took from laboriously trying to make regular time series data in Excel. And actually, you know, that's a problem that you can solve with, I don't know, one to three lines of Python or R or something like that. 
having that skill saves weeks of work. And actually, that's where I think the the biggest gains in software or in research can be made. It's easy to find poster child projects where look at this fantastic new facility we've developed or, uh, you know, whether that's something fabulous like CERN or something like that. And don't get me wrong, they're super important. But actually, if we if we were to lift everybody's skills up a little bit uh, in ways that organizations like our coding club or uh, software carpentry, data carpentry, those kinds of programs are looking to do, actually so much more becomes possible. If we were at that point, maybe I could retire and I, I wouldn't necessarily have a part to play anymore. The last question, well, what do you like to do when you're not programming and helping others and research? I've been thinking about this this week. So in Scotland, the schools have, have just gone back and, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm not juggling childcare and work and somewhere in there trying to have a, a relationship as well. And so I've been thinking, I was like, what is it I used to do with my evenings? Um, so I, I, I used to ride my bike a lot. Uh, I, you know, enjoyed exploring, uh, introducing my son to, to both of those things and, and, uh, you know, going cycle camping or bike packing or, you know, sort of those kinds of activities. But I'm also a trombonist playing with local orchestras and big bands. And I, I really miss it. Hopefully things will change and we'll find safe ways to interact or we'll find a vaccine for COVID or something along those lines. And it's obviously a very selfish motivation because I want to go and make music again. But actually sort of this society and, um, and arts and culture is a huge part of what we are as a species. And I think it's whether you're performing it or whether you're listening to it, I think it is, it gives us soul, uh, if I am getting too arty here. And, and so I, yeah, I, I'm missing playing my trombone and making music with other people. Thank you so much, Mike. It was such a pleasure talking Thank you. to you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that, goodbye.